This is the recording made in the chapel of the opened book and it is number two of the series entitled Truly Furnished. In our first uh, recording we read from 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 to 11. We continue our reading of portions of this epistle and this time our reading is 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 to the second verse of chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 Having spoken about himself as an appointed preacher, apostle and teacher of the Gentiles, the apostle continues, For the which cause I also suffer these things. It's rather strange that he has this high calling as, as an apostle, a preacher and a teacher and links it immediately with suffering. In the verse 8, he says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God. And in closing chapter 4, he says, verse 5, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. Now this is healthy. It's not to deter anybody, but it surely should make you stop and think, if you are thinking in the terms which are common to some, of going in for the ministry, you know, just like that. Well, this man says, look, this is a serious matter. You don't ask for trouble, you don't go and look for it, but you'll get plenty of it if you stand for this truth. So think twice or three times. So he says, for the which cause I also suffer these things. But he doesn't harp on that theme. He goes further. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. It's rather wonderful in a sense, a light upon the character of Paul, that in his last epistle, the word ashamed is one of the words that keep coming out like a theme. He says, be not thou therefore ashamed. That's to you, Timothy. I am not ashamed. That's me, Timothy. And this other one, Onesiphorus, verse 16, he was not ashamed of my chain. And then the great text, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And again in chapter 2, when he speaks about denying him, which is equivalent in the Gospels to being ashamed of him. So you see, this epistle is written in a certain shadow Persecution had now broken out very, very violently and strongly. And therefore it was no easy thing to stand up and witness to the truth of God. And it should be no easy thing at this very day. All right, we'll go on reading then. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That is our reading, our version. Uh, but there are some words slipped in there which are not in the original. And it stands like this. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which has been entrusted against that day. And it doesn't say who entrusted it or to whom. But the next time it's referred to shows you that it was entrusted by the Lord to the Apostle Paul. Something entrusted to him. Alright, we'll go on. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, 
So now he's turning to Timothy. I've had it committed to me. You've had it committed to you. Keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. So he is able to keep and the Holy Ghost will enable you to keep. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. Again, you see, don't think, Timothy, you're going to have the backing of a great enthusiastic crowd. They've turned away from me. I don't think they'll treat you any better. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me, and was not ashamed of my chain. And when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently, and found me. As much as to say, if he was half-hearted over it, he said, well, I'd have looked round Rome, and I couldn't find Paul, and went home again. No, he gives him all the credit, doesn't he? The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day, and in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Two more verses. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's no good telling anybody to be strong. That's Emerson with his morals. He can say, be strong. And you're not strengthened by the fact that he tells you so. But this man says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that puts you into contact. And the things that thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same, commit thou. So here's the word commit coming three times. It's been committed to me, it's been committed to you, and you in turn committed to others. The faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So, as another sidelight upon our subject, truly furnished, everyone who is truly furnished in this sense of being able to teach will have a sense of a commitment. They will have a sense that they've been entrusted with something. It's not something that they've taken up and they can put down again if they like. This is a serious matter. Something has been entrusted by, by the living God to them. And it will involve a good deal of opposition and possibly persecution. Now, Timothy, weigh it over before you make the step. Weigh it over before you give it to anyone else. And then the second thing is, not only will those who are going to be in this calling and acceptable to God be those who are trustworthy, but they will have some aptitude. I, I know that in the work of God, he can use the most indifferent instruments, the same as you and I can. But, we read, he gives to every man according to his several ability. And while we would never rule out the exceptions, we will say in the majority of cases, a person would not be given the ministry of speech if he said, um, well, 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 kind friends, I'm afraid I'm not very, very, very eloquent. Well, you say, well, all right, you take over the accounts and add up the figures and make the balance sheet all right. You do that for us, won't you? Don't you see? Look into your own heart and say to yourself, how far can I say I've got a talent given to me by God? You see, the word is used, a talent is used in a double sense with us today and rightly. Talent was a piece of money to be invested for the master's use and a talent becomes some gift that you have, that you can lay at his feet. I've paraphrased, perhaps you remember, the words of the psalmist, where he says, He has taught my hands to war, and my fingers to fight. 
Well, I paraphrased it for myself. I said, well, he taught my hands to draw and my fingers to write. And so I got on with it, you see. Well, I think that's true in most cases. So that there will be a, a sort of a coming together of general aptness and fitness and also the over and above endowment by the Spirit of God. Because there's another aspect. God chooses some unlikely vessels. One of the most unlikely successors to the Apostle Paul was the timid, youthful, abstemious Timothy. He had to be gingered up, you see. God hath not given us the spirit of cowardice, Timothy. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your oft infirmities, Timothy. Let no man despise thy youth, Timothy. This is the man who's going to step into the shoes of Paul. And you wouldn't have thought of that, would you? So, you mustn't look upon man's outward appearance. You might be deceived. It's what God is going to do with that earthen vessel. But after all things are considered, there is something, of course, from the, from the other side, that there should be some aptness, apt to teach. And so, uh, uh, if you discover that when you are enthusiastic over a scripture, uh, you begin to find that you can frame your words, you can speak so that somebody's attention's arrested, you do uh, make your voice heard in an ordinary building. You can articulate so that people know what you say. Well, you say, Lord, I want to lay that at thy feet and use it. And when the two come together, that's a blessed combination. Well, now, the passage before us, of course, as the key to this, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15, 16 and 17. Let us look at those once again. The Apostle, as associated in this epistle, as you remember, his doctrine and his manner of life. And in verse 14 he has a sort of a side look at that again. But continue thou in the things which thou hast heard and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Well now, if, if we know once and forever that two and two make four, it doesn't really matter to us whether we learned it from this particular arithmetic book or from some other one. But when it's a matter of morals and truth and doctrine, oh, it does make a difference. It makes all the difference in the world if the person who was your teacher in high and holy things could in some measure supplement his teaching by a consistent life. I don't mean to say that any one of us will ever get to the, to the idea that it's a perfect balance. But this man has associated his manner of life with his doctrine and he asks you to consider both together. Uh, you know the old dig. Uh, don't believe what I do, just listen to what I say. Well, that's a sorry thing for anyone to have to admit, isn't it? So he says, you know how, whom we have learned them. And that from a child, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. I want you to notice the sweep of these Holy Scriptures. They start with a child. Now there's about six words in the New Testament for a child. Right from a babe, right the way up till it changes from a lad to a young man and so on. And this particular word gives us our English word, the embryo. It's almost before birth. You could almost use this word, but you can't quite hear, but it's so near that it's a child on its mother's lap. From a child, a baby. Now you don't mean to say that Paul means that Timothy was one of those prodigies. When he was about a week old, he went through Psalm 119 and never made a mistake. Not that. But it does mean to you and to me. I've met, perhaps in the days gone by, I don't know whether it's the same superstition now, but as a younger fellow, 
I met some folks who were rather alarmed if their child learned a text of scripture because they may become so holy that God would take them to heaven before the time, you know. Well, you see, if a little child can learn hi diddle diddle the cat and the fiddle, it can, it can learn just the same without any oppression of its brain power. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. From a little child. Now, what, what a upbringing Tom Timothy must have had then. You remember in the first chapter, he had a mother and a grandmother that were both believers. And they saw to it that they trained him in the scriptures. So he says, from a child, thou hast known the holy scriptures. Now what were these holy scriptures uh, being used for? What was their particular emphasis? Which are able not to save you, Timothy. The scripture doesn't save you. The scripture points you to the saviour. All remember that all the time. Supposing you're walking along a dusty country road and you're tired and you're thirsty and you're weary and you see at last a finger post and it not only tells you the name of the village but it's got hanging on a little side that refreshments can be obtained at number so-and-so. Well, what do you do? Do you sit down at the finger post and say, oh, I'm so glad to have got here at last? Well, you'll die of starvation. You won't get anything from the finger post. The finger post is only to point you on to where the refreshment is. You may have your brain stuffed with Bible texts, but if that's all it means, well, some there's other men who've set up concordances. They've set up every word in the Bible. There are still unsaved printers who print the Bible. There are some people who can quote glibly the scriptures, but they don't go to Christ. In his own day, you remember, he said to them, you search the scriptures. You are called scribes. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that ye might have life. Herod said to these very class, Where is he to be born that is king of the Jews? Oh, they said, in Bethlehem, for it is written. But they never went. It was the poor ignorant shepherds that went, not the learned ones who knew chapter and verse. So he said to Timothy, These scriptures are valuable. Because they point you to the Saviour. They make you wise unto salvation. But salvation is through faith, or in faith, or through faith which is in Christ Jesus. There's no contradiction, of course. The Word of God goes together with the Christ of God. But, in a sense, we must separate them in our mind. Well, now, he not only says Holy Scriptures in verse 15, but he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable in verse 16. So that now we, um, we've got to notice that there are two different expressions used. The word scripture in verse 15 is grammatur, G-R-A-M, grammatur. And you can hear the word in our word grammar. And it is the word used for letters. Pilate is said to have put over the cross in letters of Hebrew, Latin and Greek. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Just the letters. A, B, C. From a child there was known the sacred, not holy, it's a little different word, the sacred letters. In other words, hieroglyphics. The only difference is that glyphics is something you carve in a stone and the other is you write with a pen. 
But the word hieroglyphics is sacred symbols. You have learned the sacred symbols. You've begun with the A, B, C. In other words, as the Apostle put in Corinthians and in Hebrews, you feed, first of all, with milk. You go on to richer, fuller, stronger diet as you grow. I fed you with milk and not with meat. And he, up till now he said you're not able to bear it. He complained to the Hebrews that for the time being they ought to be teachers. Do you see in the mind of God that every Christian that has come into the faith of Christ who has received the milk and then goes on to the strong meat is almost, ipso facto, is almost by that very fact fitted to be a teacher. Because strictly speaking, it doesn't require a great deal of eloquence to say to somebody in the ordinary, everyday things of life, you know, you've got a terrible bad cough. Now, I could recommend you this particular bottle of medicine because it did the trick with me. That's all. That's what we're doing to one another. Sometimes we become a nuisance, chasing everybody about with little bottles of medicine that we are emphasising. But that's what you, what you can do. You don't need a university training. You don't need academic knowledge. You don't even need to know uh, the ins and outs of intricate grammar or speak Hebrew or Greek to recommend a bottle of medicine to somebody and simply say, it did me good, I pass it on to you. That's preaching the gospel, friends. All the eloquence in the world falls down in front of the fact that you commend the grace of God. And so we have... This young man from a child owing so much to his parents and his grandparents. Will you see how the Apostle is emphasising the different ways of God with men? Look back again to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, not merely from my forefathers in an unbroken line, but away from them. Because elsewhere you find that the way they call heresy so worship by the God of my fathers, he had a break with them. He was expelled. He was reckoned to be dead. He was an outcast. He was finished. Oh, Timothy, he said. Timothy, remember the advantage you got. I had to break with my religion. I had to come to an abrupt, awful end before I started. But you from a child, have had this Christian influence over you all the time. He's doing his utmost to encourage this young man to go on. But it does help us in this way. It prevents you and me from making somebody else line up with us. You see, Paul and Timothy, both doing the same work, had entirely different upbringing and different ways of training. And in between those two, there are many other differences. Many, many years ago, Ada Habersham wrote a little book a sort of uh, parable, and she called it How a River Ought to Flow. You say, well, that's a funny idea. Well, the rivers apparently had a conference to decide what was the correct course of a river to flow. So um, I think the, the Rhine was an aristocratic, uh, yeah, I think he was chairman of the meeting, and he wore a monocle, you know, in his eye. And he stood up and he said, oh, I don't think any river is worthy of the name that doesn't take its origin in a glacier. Well, the, the Nile said, well, I seem to be, I seem to be pretty valuable, but uh, I don't think there are any glaciers where I originate. And um, 
The Nile also added, I don't think a river is really worthy of its name unless it spreads its mud all over the countryside at least once a year. That's what the Nile does. Well, the River Thames says, well, I know I don't rise in a glacier and if I start spreading a little mud, there's an awful row. So eventually they came to the conclusion that every river had to flow exactly as God had planned out, never mind whether it was in harmony with any other river or not. Now, you see, it's a silly story, but it's got a moral, hasn't it? Don't you try to trim yourself by somebody else. There's only one pattern in the ultimate sense. That's the Lord himself and those who are given us in Scripture. I said to Stuart Allen when he took over the assistant work, I said, we want you to stick to the book and we want you to stick to the truth we believe. But don't you try to make yourself a second-hand CHW. There's enough of him about without any more. You'll get criticised if you don't do it the way I do. Don't you worry about that. You speak as you see it. You put it over as you can do it, and let me do mine. We don't want second-hand copies like that, you see. So here we have two men, Timothy and Paul, both doing the same work, both serving the same Lord, having different upbringings, different qualifications, different fitness. Paul was an enthusiast, breathing out threatening and slaughter. You can never believe that Timothy ever breathed out threatening and slaughter in his life. He was a timid, shrinking person, yet God stoops to use them both, and all in between. So now we have then these holy alphabets, the beginnings, the, the ABC of the story, the grammar. Then they are called scripture in verse 16. Now this is graphing. You see, the grammar make up the graphing. The letters make up the writing. First of all, you learn the A and the B and the C, and then you put them together and spell out the words. Now this word has become in the in the Bible preeminently the scriptures. There's no other writing in the New Testament called the scriptures. Although it simply means the writing, anybody's writing. But it's the writing par excellence, the holy scriptures. Graphy. Of course the word has come into our language, photography, lithography, a graphic description and so on. So now we've got this book the teacher in the scriptures is the man of a book. A prophet was a man who spoke without a book because God gave him inspiration straight away. But even the prophets didn't disdain to read the scriptures. Daniel, who was a prophet, read the prophet Jeremiah and was woke up to the fact that the 70 years were almost over. And Peter says that after these prophets had received a message from God, they searched diligently what their own writings spoke about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. And if those who were inspired men search the scriptures, how much more should those of us who have no inspiration in that sense, except the usual uh, ability that God gives under his grace, that we should be men and women of the book? When we think of our Saviour whose name was the Word of God, and he could speak without reference to a book, if anybody could. Yet, in his public ministry, the first thing he ever did, they gave him the book, and he opened the book, and he found the place, and he read the passage. You see, that's a word for us, isn't it? I would say to every one of you who are listening to me, when you're engaged in ministry, don't say you believe in an open book. Make sure it is. 
You'd be surprised how many times you misquote a scripture, or you forget a bit, or you put a comma in the wrong place, or you don't remember the next verse goes on to say something. Keep the book open. Make the other person keep the book open. And if you do, you'll have a power behind your words that you never can have with a shut Bible. Because you're throwing the onus now upon God. You say, I'm only a messenger. Don't blackguard me because the message doesn't suit you. I've only brought it to you. You are the one responsible to receive it. And so we have these scriptures. The words, it is written, that we find in the scripture, is always a translation of the perfect tense of the verb. Now, you are listening to me, who are thinking of being teachers of others, so you mustn't jib at a little bit of grammar. Because grammar is just logic applied to language. Uh, the perfect tense is in our English language, it hath been written. Now you say, why are you stressing that? What's that mean? Well, Pilate will give you a good illustration. They, the priests and the elders, they badgered Pilate and played upon his fears until at last they got what they wanted, that Christ should be crucified. And then they were upset because over the cross it read the words, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Oh, they said, we can't tolerate. Oh, you must alter that, Pilate. Don't say that. Say, he said he was King of the Jews. But even Pilate had got to the end of his temper. And he used the perfect tense. He said, what I have written, I have written. In other words, get out. That's unalterable. So whenever you read in the New Testament, it is written. Remember, it is. it has been written and it's never going to be altered. That's the way it always should be rendered when you're explaining it to others. It's unalterable. It's written by God. It remains to this day. It has been written. Degrati. Well now it says all these, this scripture is what? Given by inspiration of God. And that word given by inspiration of God is just one word in the original. Theonistos. Now, you know, Theo is T-H-E-O, which is our word for God. Theology. Uh, I don't know whether you know that jazz, of which some of us abominate and some of us like, I don't know whether you know that jazz goes back to the word Theos. Interesting to know. Theos, Greek, was pronounced Dios by the Portuguese. And the Portuguese went to Africa. And they saw the Africans doing their ritual dance around the idol uh, shrine, and they called it the Joss, Dios, Joss, and by the time it got across the Atlantic, it was the Jazz, and it comes back now, and people with some sense in their heads uh, imitating a ritual dance with all the jiggery and movement of the body, which has to do with this insane worship. Now that's with the word Theos as degenerated, like so many words in our language. The word neustos, P-N-E-U, that's the origin, the uh, root of the word, is common knowledge to us. A pneumatic tyre is one that has air pumped into it. Pneumonia is something to do with the lungs, which have to do with air. And so we have the word inspire. You see? Well, that's a part of breathing. You inspire, you respire, and if you're, uh, you perspire. Or, uh, as it says, some only glow, others perspire. Well, there it is. 
And we also get transpire. All the leaves of the plants, they're transpiring. All meaning breathing. Well now look at this. The scripture is something written. But it's God breathed. Well how can you breathe a written word? Well, it looks as though those who wrote it down were so in contact with the giver of the word that what he said they put down. I wouldn't like to say mechanically a dictation, but it gets very, very near to it. So they didn't invent the words they wanted to say. You remember that Peter in the Acts of the Apostles, he says, the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. And even a prophet who wanted to disobey God Balaam, when he was hired by Balak to curse Israel, he says, you've hired me, though you fill my house with silver. I shan't be able to say a single word of what he permits me. So if a, a man who wanted to get a house full of silver couldn't say what he wanted to if God wouldn't let him, how much more easy it would be if a man who wanted to serve God should receive his words and give them without altering. So we needn't worry about that. So all that is written in the book has been breathed by God. We can't get it any nearer in this life than that. Fancy as I read this book, I've got an English translation of what God breathed and that particular man wrote down. Sacred letters indeed, aren't they? Holy Scriptures indeed. And we are glad to know that our Saviour endorsed them, quoted them by name, spoke of Daniel the prophet because people said he was no prophet, spoke of Jonah the prophet because they said nobody in his senses believed Jonah he endorsed them all and so we follow his steps and we do the same well now all this emphasis upon the scriptures is that they are profitable after all said and done the Bible hasn't been given us as a museum piece just to put in a glass case you know the streets around this chapel have got names that indicate the past history there's Tabernacle Street there's Worship Street, there's Paul Street, and Whitfield, whose tabernacle was out here, said these words. He said, I could write damnation in the dust on many of your Bibles. And in the days when he said that, you could go into a house and you could see a large Bible with an antimacassar on it and a shade of fruit on top of it, and that's all they did with it. That's a Bible. Oh, no, he says, it's profitable. A book is to be read. And when you read it, it must be explained. And it must be followed if it's true. So we must use the word of God. Profitable for what? For doctrine. Now the word doctrine uh, sometimes frightens people. It's only the word teaching. The word teacher is the word which gives us the word doctor. Didaskalos and didache, all those words have to do with teaching. Now we, of course, think about mainly a doctor of medicine when we say, send for the doctor. If somebody suddenly came into this chapel and said, send for the doctor, we wouldn't say, oh, excuse me, do you mean the doctor of medicine? Do you mean the doctor of law and literature? Do you mean the doctor of economics? Oh, no, there's one preeminent doctor because we first of all think about health and disease and death, you see. But why is he called a doctor? He's called a doctor because he's supposed to know his job so well that he can teach somebody else. That's a doctor. You see? So, our Saviour was heard discussing with the doctors in the temple. They were teachers. 
So this is profitable for teaching. It gives you the subject of teaching and it helps you the way of teaching. Teaching. Doctrine. And without doctrine, without teaching, we haven't got the material of our trade. We've got no bricks to build with. Here we've got the material and we have the method given to us by type and shadow. Profitable for doctrine. For proof. A reproof. Because it's not only positive, it's also negative. It tells you where you're wrong, as well as the right way. And this is a very wise warning to us. Over and over again in the scriptures, it tells you, gives you a direction in two different ways. Because we're so constituted that if we miss it one way, we may get it the other. Think of John, the way he uses that so many times. He confessed and denied not. What did he say? Well, he didn't say, oh, but he said they put it both ways. Have you never been led astray because somebody didn't anticipate your mind and those little puzzles that they'd forgotten all about? Have you ever been invited to somebody to go to tea? And they say, when you come out of the station, turn to the right and turn down the first turning and our house is on the left. Well, you come out of the station and there's a turning. You say, well, they said the first turning, didn't they? Yes, looks a funny one, but still we must be obedient. Down you go. And you go on and on and at last you catch a bus and you go home. You never get to tea or anything. Why? Because the people who lived in the neighbourhood never thought, never thought of that little alleyway that you wouldn't know whether it was the first turning or not. Now when you're teaching, you've got to anticipate that. You've got to remember that you, you know all the way but the other person doesn't. Go step by step and put it two ways round if you can. So that there'll be no mistake in the first start off. For correction, that's very similar to reproof, but there's another aspect, and instruction. We're back again in positive things. Doctrine, instruction, teaching. And all is that the man of God may be perfect. Now, what does it mean by perfect? What does it mean by truly furnished? Well, let's have a look at this word, truly furnished. Ex artizo. E-X-A-R-T-I-Z-O. Rotherham translates it well prepared. Weymouth translates it perfectly equipped. J-N-D says fully filled. That's not too good because we don't want the word filled in it. But it does mean equipped or prepared. And one of the usages of it in classical Greek is the outfitting of a ship in a dockyard. And even we, maritime people as we are, have got the proverb, there's no back door to a ship. And if you don't know what that parable means, well, if you were on board ship, you'd know what it meant. You're miles out from coast, you're weeks away, and you haven't got a certain thing. What are you going to do? Well, you can do nothing. You haven't got it. That's the end of it. And, if you went over one of these large liners, you discover they've got instruments and material there that have been in their place ever since that ship was launched and never been used once. There's been no call to use them. But they can't say, oh, we'll pitch them overboard because of any next voyage that they want them. That's the way word that is used for the fitting out of the man of God. Equipping him for all possible claims and emergencies. I remember when I was on the Queen Mary across in the Atlantic 
I watched the man go round one part of the deck. He, he pressed a little knob and lights came on a, 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 a life-saving belt. He cut something else and a, see, he was going round testing that each one of these belts had got the, the battery working so that if you were overboard, you could have a light bobbing on the waves. And they never used them. But they were there to use, you see. So you must never sort of limit your training. You never know but what something that you only half-heartedly touch might be the very vital thing. So unto the Lord, complete equipment as far as it's humanly possible. I know you've got to be watchful and careful. But if you came into my home and expected to see rows and rows of lexicons and concordances, you'd have to go to my room or my desk. But you see, all sorts of books, all sorts of things, what rubbish he reads. Look at the stuff he's got. Why? Well, because I've got an interest in everything that belongs to my fellow man. Good, bad and indifferent. And the more I know of that, the more I can anticipate and the more I can help the other person. Don't you be indifferent to these things, or don't, don't let them swamp you. So now we've got the man of God. You see where we've got? We started with a child, didn't we? Now we've got a man of God. And the child needed the Bible at the beginning and the man of God can't do without it at the end. Still there. The man of God, he never outgrow it. He'll grow with it. Josephus has the use of this word, <coughs> ex artizo. He says that a certain army was in mighty disorder because they were attempting to meet in battle those who were thoroughly prepared. You see, mighty disorder on one hand, the others were thoroughly equipped. There's the use of the term. Equipped for battle. Equipped for all sorts and types of service. The word artizo by itself, without the word X, or you say, why X comes in? Well, that means out of, doesn't it? Well, when we say the word out, in our own language, we sometimes don't mean go out and leave it. We mean something extra. When I say I'll outdo you, that means a little bit different from when I'll do you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And outbid somebody. And outbuy somebody. And outlive somebody. Oh, we've got it in our own language. So here we have outfitted. Oh, we use it in our own language. Isn't that strange? And I didn't think of it. Outfitted. With no idea of out, going out and leaving it, you see. But the simple word, artizo, comes in a context which I think is useful. Perhaps we'll turn to this one, as we haven't looked at the scriptures. Uh, Matthew, the fourth chapter. You know all about it as soon as we read the passage. But I want everybody listening to me to have the same. In the fourth chapter, our Saviour is calling his followers. And in verse 20, uh, where is it now? Verse... 18. Verse 18. And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Do you notice that word mending is this word artizo. 
There are some whose one conception of Christian service is fishing. You see? And it may be that that's all they've been called to do. But the trouble is they criticise the other man who's mending the nets. But of course, if everybody started fishing and nobody started mending nets, they'd get nothing. Just the same as if everybody started mending nets and never went fishing, they'd get nothing. You couldn't have for breakfast a mended net, could you? And you wouldn't get any fish if it was all such big holes that they all went through. So whatever you do, friends, never you turn round to the Lord and say, and what shall this man do? For the Lord will rebuke you. You're saying, what is that to you? You follow now me. If he says to you, I'll make you a fisher, go on fishing. But you be thankful that somebody else is mending the net, will you? And if you are a net mender, don't you criticise the other man? Because what's the good of you mending the net if he doesn't use it for fishing? And the net mender is more the teacher. And the fisher is the evangelist who does the gospel work. And they both should go together. Where teaching ends and finishes, evangelism dies. Because unless you've got the doctrine in your heart, you can't preach salvation to the sinner. So we want the teacher and the preacher walking hand in hand. Sometimes they are mingled together in one person. Sometimes they're very distinct. One of the criticisms that were passed upon me in my early days was, he said, you don't preach the gospel, you teach it. I said, right, that's, that's what I've been given to do. You see, I'm not going to argue with my destiny and say, oh, unless I'm another Billy Graham, I've made a hash of my life. I don't envy Billy Graham. I think he does a marvellous work. I don't know how he does it. I want to do my work. You want to do your work, not mine or yours, but what he's given you to do. And if only we can say that in answer to the prayer, Lord, what was to have me to do? And then get on with it. What a fine thing it would be. So if you hear our Sunday school children, as you do sometimes, singing the chorus, I will make you fishers of men, you see, you'll, you'll discover that they've got another one written to it wasn't written by Shakespeare, Tennyson or Browning, of course, but it says, I will make you menders of nets. I wonder if the people who are listening to this tape recording think, what a lovely voice he's got to sing. I, uh, I hope they've understood why I'm singing. Well, here we have, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished. We don't use the word truly today, we use the word thoroughly. But it's the same thing. When we use the word through, we use it like this. A thorough fair, or a through fair. It's a way you can go right through. We take a through ticket, or we go by a through train, it always means going right through. Right through. Fitted right through from one end to the other. Here's your equipment. And I do trust that as we go into this subject a bit more, and see the way in which God has written the book, and given instruction, given samples, given patterns for us to follow, that those who are listening to it will get some clues, some guidance, and be able, in some measure, if they have this aptness to teach, and this laid upon them to preach, that they may find help in their training. Do remember that there's a little difference between a profession and a vocation. You speak to a nurse, and you may say, well, look, you're poorly paid, you've got a fine mind, why don't you take up whatever it might be? Or they said, I know I'm not well paid, but 
I can't help it. I've got to give my life and my time to that work. That's a vocation. And the Apostle Paul said, I have a dispensation laid upon me. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. He said, it's laid upon me. I've got to do it. So there must be some sense. Not meaning that it's a respectable thing or a nice thing or or please your mother or whatnot, that you're going to be a preacher or a teacher, but somehow or the other there's a drive behind it that you can't explain but you can't help. So with that, for the moment, we'll call a, a halt and pick up our study once again when we meet together, God willing, next time on the various ways in which God has written in his book guidance for the teacher that he may be truly or thoroughly furnished unto all good works.